seven months. The Philistines called the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. But they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, and you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. The same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make him, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your hand. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them, and they did not let the people go that they might depart? And therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by his side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great thing. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand, his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. How long was the ark among the Philistines? Seven months. That's kind of an interesting period, isn't it? A, you know, complete period of time. We might look at it that way. And uh, they call for their religious experts. Well, how do we send the ark back? And what do the religious experts say they ought to do? Yeah, got to send some of our present back, you know. Don't don't send it away empty-handed. So golden rats and golden tumors seem to be an idea. Makes you wonder if there was some, this, this plague, these tumors were somehow connected with rodents. I mean, makes you think of the bubonic plague or something that way. I don't know. But maybe there was some kind of a connection. And uh, so, so they suggest sending it back with these presents. And, and they make a really good statement in verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had sent, severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? So they're saying, well, you know, don't hold out for ten plagues like Pharaoh did. You know, that really was stupid for him to do that. You don't want to do that. You know, that's a good point. I mean, wow. Don't ever underestimate God's ability to keep punishing and to come up with more ideas, you know. So uh, better to cut your losses here. I think that was wise advice. But the way they're going to send the ark back is really interesting. How are they going to do this? On a cart. Going to put it on a cart drawn by two young cows. Two milk cows. Whose calves are back home. And what are they going to watch and see? If the cows take the ark straight to Israel, what would you expect the cows to do? Yeah. So they are kind of giving this some long odds. You know, it would be unusual cows that would go straight in the opposite direction from their young. Why are they doing it this way, do you think? Look 
probably don't want to believe that it's really God. So and if it's not really God, they really don't want to give, it up. give up the ark. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was just coincidence. You know, maybe this was just by chance. So they're going to set up a test that is going to see... It, it, you know, they're, they're basically setting this up to, to where it's going to fail. In order where any self-respecting cow is going to go back to its cat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that way they won't have to give up the ark. Uh, they're, they're, they're really going to make God overrule the instincts of, of the uh, milk cows. And uh, think about what that does. We're going to find out that these cows make a beeline right for Israel by making the test so difficult. What did that really accomplish? the answer. Yeah, and glorify God even more. When you give God the opportunity to do the harder thing, it really honors and glorifies him more. Think about, do you remember like when uh, Elijah had that contest on Mount Carmel, see whose God was the real God and could uh, spontaneously ignite the sacrifice? And, uh, you know, the Baal worshippers, all of them, the hundreds of them, don't manage to get it done all day. And so he puts the 12 stones and then kills the animal. And then he digs a ditch around the altar. And he asked for 12 big buckets of water to be brought to douse the sacrifice and fill up the ditch with water. You ever wondered why in the world did he do that? If it was gasoline, I would understand <laughs> But water is not something that usually makes something spontaneously ignite. What did that show? Absolutely. When God brings the fire down that burns up the altar, the stones, the water, and the dust around the altar, it shows who God really is. God likes long odds. It's just a way of showing his glory even more greatly. So they're setting this up with the desire that it fail. And if it doesn't fail, then it's obviously the hand of God. Because you would sure expect these cows to go back home. Comments and thoughts on this section? Yeah, Alex. It occurs to me because we, uh, we see people doing that today. I mean, the longer the odds you give it, the more unlikely it is to happen. I mean, you know, we, we see these secular atheist scientists who say you know, we have all these long odds of life actually happening so it can't be God when in fact you know the opposite is true where life is so unlikely the fact that it actually happens gives God glory all the more good point so that's other thoughts Roger so what does that mean for our lives Gary that last point you made so does that mean we, we pray to God and we Tell him to do these hard things in our lives uh, to see if he shows up. Uh, I mean, what does that mean for our lives? Well, I don't think uh, we tell God to do anything. We want God's will to be done. I think it just shows you by God doing all these things how great he is. We will see God in the Bible and even in our lives doing things that are against all odds, right? Well, and, and when do we cross the line of testing God? one of our prayers like what I mean by I don't know if I'm making any sense right now I just feel like 
Okay, so I ask God, God, I, you know, I want your will to be done. Obviously, we pray that, but we also pray, God, I really want you to do this. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean it's, uh, honestly, I mean, that's what we do. We, I mean, we want God's will to be done, but we really hope that it's that thing that we really want. Um, I mean, not that that's wrong. I'm just saying a lot of times we don't even know what it is. Uh, so, like, what do we do? I mean, where's the line between am I testing God? Am I really trusting him? Or, like, or do I pray for these big things for God to show up? I don't know. Does that make any sense? <coughs> yeah. What should we pray? What should we request in our prayers? His will be done. And what does that mean we request in our prayers? We know a lot of specific things that are His will. Absolutely. We should be requesting the things that we know are God's will by what He reveals. You know, sometimes we have, ah, this is a caricature, but I think sometimes we almost think like this. Well, if, if God reveals that something is his will, then I won't pray about that because I know God's going to do that. If I don't think it is God's will, then that's what I'm going to pray and I'm going to get see if I can get him to change his mind and do what I want. Well, think about this. What if you knew God didn't think something was a good idea, but if you really wanted him to, he'd do it? Would you ask him to do it? I'd be scared to death to pray if I thought God would do my will and not his. We really do want him to do what his will is. And so what we pray are the things we know are what his will is. We don't pray something saying, I don't think God will want this, but maybe I can talk him into it. Why would we want to do that? That would be so foolish on our part. Justin? Kind of to answer what Roger's saying a little bit, is we, all of that, but we also should not ever doubt what he can do. So at, at the same time, we don't, we're not really testing him or trying to get him to do something that's not necessarily against his will, but maybe what we want. But when we pray, we pray that we're, we don't doubt that he can fix that situation or that he can, or that as long as it's not against his will, and that's why we pray that it's his will, but at the same time, we don't need to doubt when we pray the things that we know are His will, we can have confidence that He will answer and He will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And, and I don't think we have to have any fear of praying those prayers. Cassie? But we just talked about how kind of like we make provisions like to see God and be praying in our lives. So we were also just kind of talking about how like sometimes it's good to not think only God can do these small things. Like allow the Lord to show that He can do great things. Absolutely. But again, where is that testing God? I think that's kind of what Roger was trying to go to too. Like, like when does that become testing versus just allowing Him to show up in a big way in my life? That makes more sense. <laughs> I mean, I want you to be testing God to ask Him to do what He reveals that He wants to do. It wouldn't be testing God to ask Him to do what He reveals that He wants to do. Yeah, but there's some other prayers that are way too specific, like, that are not exactly, you know, like, like, or, or even like, you know, God, you know, help this person to be able to travel here, or, you know, or maybe that is part of this will. Maybe it's not. How did Hannah know that her having a, a, a son was God's will? I mean, is that, that's a fairly extreme 
very unlikely prayer since she's been barren for so long. I mean, how does she does she know that it's in God's will? Well, I don't know the answer to that. It was something that she really, really wanted. And it's something that God had done in the past. And it was certainly in his overall will to multiply and fill the earth. So. I think that there's a lot of things that, um, well, I think what Roger's trying to talk about is there's a lot of things that, that God doesn't care whether one way it happens or whether it happens one way or the other. I mean, he doesn't, it, it's not a part of his specific will whether I get this job or whether I get another job or whether you know I go to this one place or you know it's it's not a law or actually in his will and it's something that that we would wish to happen for our life but it's not a specific like law or commandment or will and he doesn't care whether it happens one way or the other and then that's when he considers our our prayer towards that yeah, I don't know about all that. Um, you know, I would just say consider biblical prayers a lot. And consider the idea of a submissive heart toward God, of crying out to God, and of seeking in prayer the will of the Lord. What we really want, you know, if you believe God will answer prayer, then what you pray for tells you a lot about you. Because if you think God will answer, then what you pray for is what you really believe God will be doing. That will show you a lot about what you really care about. I think we reveal a lot about our real concerns and how we pray. And sometimes what we show is we're not really thinking all that much about the things God is thinking about. And we're not really praying all that much about the things that God would be concerned about. I think it would help if we would really seek to be more Bible-centered in what we do say in our prayer. You can think about that. Logan. Yeah, I'm just thinking about this in light of this attitude that we're supposed to have to prayer and that submissive idea. Would it be wrong for us to do something like Abraham did and he prayed for Given the, the reputation of Sodom that wouldn't be something that we bought would be within God's will. Well, how did Abraham pray then? Did Abraham pray, God, would you please spare Sodom and Gomorrah whether or not there are any righteous people in it or not? No, he said, God, it would be far from you to punish the righteous from the wicked. That's not the kind of character you've revealed. So if there are 50 righteous, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, would you spare Sodom the more? He was basing that on what he knew about what God wanted and what God, God's character is. But I think if he'd have said, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah, even if there's nobody righteous there, you would be praying something that you know is against God's character and God's attitude and God's will. And you wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want Sodom and Gomorrah to be spared if they ought to be punished in the will of God. Yes? I think sometimes we think we can pray and not I think we can if we have the right attitude is one of our main reasons in how we pray I mean yes we need to we need to be thanking God we need to be praising him we need to be um, asking for forgiveness a lot of things we pray about but sometimes well we can't ask for something that we want but we need to have the attitude that you know if we don't get it if, if, you know if someone says well let's um, 
you know, God, sometimes we try to limit God, you know, God, can you heal that person, you know, just a little bit, why not ask for, God, I want you to heal that person. What's wrong with asking God, I want you to heal that person. If it's your will, heal this person. If it's not, you have something else planned for him, okay. We, we think about Jesus um, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, you know, let this cut pass. I mean, who else, Jesus knew better what he was supposed to do. But did he not still ask, you know, if it's your will, I'll go through with it. But did he not even ask that question? Did he not say, you know, if I have to do this, okay, I'm not really going to enjoy this, but I, it seems like even Jesus asked, had a personal quest, you know, of this past. But he said, but, you know, it's ultimately up to you. That gives us plenty of things to think about with that. You can be thinking about that some more in, in your own life. Let's go ahead and move on with the story at this point. What's going to happen with these cows? 10 to 18. <laughs> then the men did so and took two uh, milch cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden bias and the likeness of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Pishemesh. <coughs> They went along the highway, knowing as they went, did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Bethshemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark, and were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, the Bethshemite, and, and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. To what verse? 18. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Bethshemite. So, uh, they set the cows free, and what did the cows do? Straight to Bethshemesh, an Israelite Levitical city. And what were the cows doing as they went? Lowing. Lowing. I'm assuming they're kind of uh, not real pleased. Ooh. You know, kind of a protesting lowing. That's what I'm assuming. And uh, so that shows that God's will is prevailing over these uh, cattle. And uh, men of Beth Shamish, they see the ark coming, they rejoice, and what do they do? Sacrifice the cows. They sacrifice the cows on the wood of the cart. The wood of the cart. And uh, so that was really encouraging. And uh, so. The ark comes back to Israelite territory. <laughs> Comments and questions. Nineteen to twenty-one. <coughs> they struck the men of Bethshemesh as they had 
looking to the ark of the Lord, he struck 50,000 and seven men of the people. The people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with the great slaughter. And the men of Bethlehem said, Who is able to stand before the holy Lord God, and who shall go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up from you. What did the men of Beth Shemesh do that they shouldn't have? Looked into the ark. The Lord wasn't too happy about that. Now there's a textual question here. Some of the texts read that he killed 50,070 people. And some of them read he killed 70 people. 70 may be more reasonable in this context, but the, the texts are different about that. So you can... Uh, consider that however you want. Either way, there are a lot of people who died because they looked into the ark when they should not have. What were they? What was the problem with doing that? Why was that bad? Well, we touched the ark. Yes. So why was it bad? Because they touched it a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But why was that bad? Because he said not to. Yeah, it was, God's a holy God. They are disrespectful to God and His commands. You know, they are not really thinking about the holiness of God. They're maybe curious. I don't know. Wonder if the Philistines took anything out. So, they are slaughtered by the Lord. God <laughs> demands that His will be respected. And what do the people of Beth Shemesh want to do? <laughs> do what? They want to take a look. Yeah, but then after they are, they're slaughtered, what do they want to do? Get rid of, it. Get rid of the ark. I remind you of anything? <laughs> there are certain Philistine cities that kind of would identify with that. That's kind of sad, don't you think? So, God is not only going to punish uh, Philistines that don't respect him, he'll punish Israelites that don't respect him too. God's holiness must be honored. Comments or thoughts through chapter 6? Alright, good comments. One thing. Okay. Uh, certainly God's no respecter of persons. He doesn't allow his people to be wicked and not go punish because that would be a bad, just because that would be a bad influence to the Philistines because couldn't they look over there and say, hey, they got the same problem. And there's many situations throughout the Old Testament where God does that, even with the Israelites in the wilderness. It's not like he didn't punish them for fear that the Egyptians and the other nations might see it the wrong way. So he doesn't respect... Yeah, God's an equal opportunity punisher. <laughs> He'll punish his people as well when they do the wrong thing, and that shows God's justice and fairness. All right, very good. I'm going to give you another break. We'll take a break for about 15 minutes, then we'll have one.